Our lesson from the New Testament is found in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from the New English Bible. Jesus was then led away by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. For forty days and nights he fasted, and at the end of them he was famished. The tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, Scripture says, Man cannot live on bread alone. He lives on every word that God utters. The devil then took him to the holy city and set him on the parapet of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For the scripture says, he will put his angels in charge of you and they will support you in their arms for fear you should strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, Scripture says again, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. All these, he said, I will give you if you will only fall down and do me homage. But Jesus said, be gone, Satan. Scripture says, you shall do homage to the Lord your God and worship him alone. Then the devil left him, and angels appeared and waited on him. Amen. May God bless to us an understanding of this part of his word. Mr. Massey had to be away today. He is our choir director, and part of our choir is in Bluefield, West Virginia, and I think this choir did a very fine piece of work this morning, and I'm very grateful for their encouragement. We have been talking for the last several uh, weeks in our Sunday morning messages about trials that great men of the Bible endured. We have entered now into the Lenten season some two weeks ago, the word Lent, for those of you who are Protestants, <laughs> the, the, the word Lent uh, comes from the, word, uh, uh, the English word lengthen. It means the lengthening out of the days. You've been noticing lately that the sun is coming up earlier in the morning and it's lasting longer in the evening in our part of the world. And uh, this is true over in England. And the word Lent comes from the lengthening of days. One of the sermons that is almost always preached in liturgical churches during the Lenten season has to do with the first great trial of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is particularly instructive for those of us who wish to think carefully about our relationship to him and to live in stricter accord with his will. God had one son without sin. He had no son without temptation. All of us are faced with temptation. Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us, at his baptism in the river Jordan by John the Baptist, there was a tremendous experience. 
in which the voice of God was heard. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God came upon Jesus at that time mightily. Now remember that in our Lord Jesus Christ there are two natures. He is God, in that as we said in the creed today, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He is God incarnate, but he is also man. He is, as the Nicene Creed puts it, very God of very God, and he is very man of very man. He is man as well as God. In his human nature, he overcame the power of the devil, setting for us the pathway and showing for us his leadership and guidance as God's own Messiah. So immediately after his baptism, and he identifies himself with us in his baptism, he is driven by the Spirit, we are told, led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he is to be tempted of the devil. Now, let me say at this point, we live in a time when there is a great resurgence of interest in the supernatural. The scriptures are very plain in teaching that there is a malignant evil force known as Satan, the adversary. The devil is real. Angels are real. These are supernatural beings. The Bible teaches it. Jesus taught it. And if you can believe Jesus enough to save your soul, then believe him enough to accept what he teaches about the work of the adversary, the devil. It's very important that we remember that. In fact, I noticed just uh, a week or so ago that the Internal Revenue Service has just granted tax-exempt status to the Church of Satan in California. There is a great resurgence of Satan worship. And just a few weeks ago, we had a distinguished Harvard PhD here lecturing, and he has done a great study in the revival of interest in Satanism and, uh, and in the occult. Now, in the, this is a little Anglican uh, book of common prayer. Last summer, I went on a banana boat down to uh, someplace in South America, Columbia, in South America, and I held services on board the boat. And uh, a black man and I became very good friends, and he gave me this little prayer book when we got off the boat uh, back in Miami. And uh, I've been reading through this, and I'm very much interested in what is said here when a believer is baptized in the Anglican prayer book. Listen to this. Or, uh, this is interesting. Dost thou, the, then the priest shall demand of each of the persons to be baptized the following question. Dost thou renounce the devil and all his works the vain pomp and glory of the world with all covetous desires of the same and the carnal desires of the flesh, so that thou wilt not follow nor be led by them? The answer is, I renounce them all. Now that makes it pretty plain. And then further, when the priest prays at the time of baptism, he prays, grant that he may have the power and strength to have victory 
and to triumph against the devil, the world, and the flesh. What this means is that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ and you follow him as we are taught in the pages of the New Testament, you enter into the arena of great spiritual conflict. You will be attacked by the world and the flesh and the devil. And those who are to know victory ought to know something about the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ here. Immediately at his baptism, he is led by the Holy Spirit into this wilderness experience, into the barren, rocky, desert place. And here the evil one comes to tempt him. And it was no mock temptation. It was real. Now we need to divest our minds from any idea of a devil coming in a red suit with a pitchfork and a forked tail or in a black uniform or some such thing as that. This is a struggle that goes on inside his soul, but the tempter is very, very real. He is a malignant, evil force. I cannot see the wind outside, but I saw the results of the wind when I came up Assembly Drive today. I saw trees blown over. I heard it, and I can hear it. I cannot see the devil, but I can see the effects of the devil in this world. We can see him at work. He comes and appears to the Lord Jesus. He appears in the struggle as the Lord Jesus begins to think of the great ministry which God has now anointed him for and to which he is called and for which purpose he has come into the world. Jesus came to lead believers in him, God's chosen, those born again of the Spirit of God. In this great conflict, this is the work that he has called us to. And so we are told that after a period of fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, at the end of them, he was famished. Most of us do not fast nearly enough. Fasting is taught in Scripture. Jesus went through this period of fasting, and when he came to that 40th day, famished, the tempter approached him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread, if you're the Son of God. I do not believe that Satan doubted that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that the devil believes a lot more than a great many professors in theological seminaries. The devil believes in the deity of Jesus Christ. He didn't doubt it. He said to him, if you're the son of God, trying to create a doubt within Jesus in his work as Messiah, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Tell these stones to become bread. What has that temptation to do with you and to me? 
Jesus, hungry, looked at those flat stones and thought about the little loaves of bread that his mother had made. Jesus knew what it was to be poor. He worked in a carpenter shop with an awl and a mallet and a saw and a chisel. Jesus knew what it was to work with his hands. If you wonder how high the unemployment rate was in Jesus' time, all you have to do is read the pages of the gospel where 5,000 men are listening to him preach out on the hillside. There must have been a great many people who knew what it was to be unemployed. Now Jesus has great sympathy with the unemployed. Great sympathy with the working man. Great sympathy with people who are hungry. He is thinking of the establishment of his kingdom. So Satan says, you're hungry. Why not turn these stones into bread, feed yourself selfishly, and establish a kingdom on bread? Be the bread man. Build a kingdom on bread. Forget about the spiritual. This is what Karl Marx did. This is what Chairman Mao has done. Anyone who has any knowledge whatever of China knows that now more people are eating in China under communism, slaying off tens of millions. So if your primary concern is this world, then I highly recommend communism. Go after something that will really supply it. If you do not believe in eternal values, be the bread man. Go after what will fill people full of bread and forget about the spiritual. That's the great temptation. Now Jesus knew what it was to be hungry and on occasion he fed people. He performed a miracle in which loaves and fishes fed a crowd of over 5,000 men. And they wanted to come and make Jesus king. And he refused it. He said to them, I know why you want to make me king. Not because you saw a miracle, a sign, a wonder from God, attesting to me as God's Messiah, but because your belly was filled with the loaves and fishes. And then he said, labor not for the meat that perishes, but labor for that which lasts for eternity. The church, at this point, has a great deal of false teaching in its midst. Certainly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned for the poor. But what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole wide world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Where is the allocation of priority? Jesus knew hunger. He knew thirst. Do you remember when he was tired and he sat down by the well of Sychar and the woman came out to draw water and he entered into that conversation with us. It said Jesus was weary and he sat down by that well. He was thirsty and he asked for a drink of water. In that last week of his life, he walked toward a fig tree that had a profusion of growth upon it, hoping to pick some figs and eat them. 
because to him these fig berries would have satisfied hunger pains within him. He knew what hunger was. And yet here when Satan tempts him to establish his kingdom upon bread, he answers from scripture. He answers from the ancient book of Deuteronomy. I took the trouble yesterday to go back into Deuteronomy and to start reading where Jesus found these words. You remember the children of Israel, God's chosen people, whom Moses had led out of Egypt and had sought to make that rabble Semitic tribal group into a nation from whom God's Messiah would ultimately come. How because of their disobedience they wandered in the wilderness. How when they were hungry God had fed them with manna from heaven. Yet they grumbled and they complained. Well here Jesus succeeds where they failed. Where they grumbled in the wilderness Jesus does not grumble. But Jesus answered man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, you wouldn't be living if God had not spoken. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the dry land be formed, and it was formed. God spoke. Jesus is called the Word of God. So where do we allocate our priorities? Build a kingdom upon bread, or do we put first things first? Is God really first or is economic security first? I wonder how many preachers would leave the ministry if they suddenly inherited five million dollars. I wonder what they really would do. What would they do? What's first? Man does not live by bread alone, says Jesus. He lives on every word that God utters. The first temptation is to the physical. You see, he was concerned about his kingdom, and temptation is the keenest at the point that means the most to you. He was most concerned with the establishment of the kingdom of God, so Satan will tempt him along that line. The devil then took him to the holy city and he set him on the parapet of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For the scripture says he will put his angels in charge of you and they will support you in their arms for fear you should strike your foot against a stone. Here is a temptation to the senses. Here, if you could imagine a great scene of thronging worshipers, thousands and thousands of people are down here in the courtyard of the temple. And Jesus, in this vision, is taken up to the top of the temple and he looks down upon all of these people. And Satan says, jump from this 600-foot height and, and God will send a flight of angels and they'll intercept you and they'll let you down gently to the earth. And then all of these people will believe in you. Be their stunt man. 
demonstrate something to them. But Jesus will not do this. We can do this in subtle ways. You can be overpowered by massive church structures. The other Sunday when the Adams joined our church and met with the church session, I had an interesting thing take place. Last fall, I'd been invited to go to Hollywood, Florida to preach in a series of meetings around Easter time. And uh, in order to get away, you should go before your session and ask permission. And this gets a little painful because I'm away a lot. And uh, so sometimes I don't feel that it's a good time to bring it up to the session. Don't tell them I said this. But, uh, but you look around, you don't know whether you're going to ask permission to be away, and one looks at the other one, and one looks at the other one, and whether they'll decide to let you go or not. So I, every time I'd try to get up enough nerve to ask to be away, my nerve would fail me, and I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off until I forgot about it. And the other day, the man called. He had to know when I was coming, or if I was coming. So I had to call him before church on Sunday morning and I said to him the session is going to meet to take uh, some people into the membership of the church today and and I'll ask them and he said all right now you ask them and I'll telephone you tonight when you get home and I said uh, I have some distinguished visitors who are going to be present today and he and I want you to really pray for me and he said well I'll pray for your sermon if you'll pray for mine so we agreed to swap prayers and uh, then uh, I hung up, and I asked the session, and they said I could go. Thank you, session. And then uh, uh, that, that night, he called back from Florida, and he said, well, how did your sermon go? So we went through that. And I said, how did your sermon go? He said, well, we really had an experience at church. He said, this morning, when I got up to preach, the, the deacons came down with the offering, and one of the deacons reached up and handed me a note. And he said, I read the note, and the note said, Colonel Young, who has been six and a half years in a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam, is in church this morning. And so, my friend, the Presbyterian minister's name is Archie Davis. Archie read this note out loud to the congregation. The congregation spontaneously stood to their feet and applauded. And when they had finished applauding and sat down, this man who showed the severe privation through which he had passed walked up to the front of the church and said to the minister, may I say a few words? And he said, of course. And this man who had suffered so much so thin and emaciated turned and looked at the congregation, and this is a very beautiful church, the St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Hollywood. He said, this is a beautiful church. And I'm glad, so glad, that I can be here this morning to worship. But I want you to know that for six and one-half years, I worshiped God on a dirt floor in a wire cage. But he said, I really worshiped God. He said, we had one man who read from the Bible and we listened to the Bible like we never listened to the Bible before. 
He said, we sung hymns and we sung hymns like I never sung hymns before. And he said, we prayed. And we prayed harder than we'd ever prayed before. And he said, this is a very beautiful church. But you don't need all of this to really worship God. What you really need to know is your need of him. Well, Archie said I could have all but pronounced the benediction because <laughs> they, they had the blessing. Now, that's the point right here. How much razzle-dazzle does it take to worship God? What are the inducements? What are the inducements? I talked one time, I saw, you know, the Lions Club has these things where they help the visually handicapped. And we had a man when I was in high school who came to our town. And uh, he had been blind from birth. And the Lions Club had gotten money together and somehow a, a fantastic operation was formed and he was, uh, allowed, he was made so that he could see. And he told us how many steps led up to the high school to come in the main entrance. He told us what kind of shrubbery was on the outside. He told us many things that those of us who have eyes to see did not see because we did not appreciate them. And then they had a period of questions and answers. And some of the boys, uh, when they were asking him questions uh, about uh, how different were things, some fellow said, what did girls look like to you when you were first able to see? And he said, well, they looked like I thought they would look. And uh, then they said, uh, what was the biggest surprise to you? And you know what he said it was? He said, the biggest shock that I got when I was made to see was churches. He said, I was really sickened by how ornate they were. He said, I'd always thought that in worshiping God, there was a simplicity about it. And I was overcome by uh, the way that so many of them were ornate. And he thought that a lot of it was superfluous. Well, here is a temptation to the senses. Give us a sign from heaven and we'll believe you is what the Jews once said to Jesus. You remember when they nailed him on the cross, what he said? They had him nailed on the cross and they said, Come down from the cross and we'll believe you. That's the sign. I don't believe in a God who would let my mother die with cancer. I don't believe of a God who would let these people starve to death out there. You see, that makes you God. Give us a sign. Do what we want you to do. Then we'll believe in you. That's atheism. That's atheism. Paul said the Jews seek a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. So Jesus refuses to be the stunt man. Satan had quoted for him scripture. Satan said my favorite verse is Psalm 91.11. The angels will, will bear you up in their hands lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, it is also written that you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Referring back to that Deuteronomy passage and what Moses had said to those who tempted God in the wilderness. When they bickered about their treatment from God. And the third sign, the last sign of uh, temptation, is when Satan really puts it on. And boy, this is current today. Once again, the devil took him up into a very high mountain 
He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Jesus came to save people every place, but they are to believe in him. Not in Buddha, Mohammed, Confucius, but in Jesus as the Messiah. He came to save them. Well, here, Satan takes him up into a high mountain. He shows him all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, let's make a deal. You worship me, and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Now, Satan has great power in the world today. And there's always that temptation to compromise. Compromise with Satan. To get ahead for God. Compromise with him. God's kingdom will be brought about in God's way, not the devil's way. And that's important to remember. There are certain things which are wrong, dead wrong, contrary to the teaching of Holy Scripture, and which must be avoided. The devil is no fool. The devil is a great counterfeiter. Back when I was a boy, it was quite a thing to get a hold of a half a dollar, and boy, you were really rich if you ever got a hold of a silver dollar. And if you were going to counterfeit a silver dollar, you could make a silver dollar out of wood. But you wouldn't have many takers, would you? You could make a silver dollar out of lead. But there are people who would feel of it and thud it, and they'd say, that thing is counterfeit. But you could make a silver dollar and just put 10% silver or 15% silver, like the government's doing now. And, and, uh, and you can get it to pass. You could get it to work that way. Well, that's what the devil does. He says, now listen, we're going to work out a deal. And you don't really have to believe there's a heaven and a hell and that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary or he rose again from the dead and that people ought to believe in him. Let's make us a world religion. Let's get the lowest common denominator. Let's work out some good things. Now that's how any, the root of all heresy is salvation by works. It means that you can do it yourself. You do not need the cross and Jesus' death for your sins, but you can do it yourself. Well, here Satan brings him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says all you have to do to get them is simply to worship me. No one else out here in the desert can see it. We're way off out here. Let's just make this little deal. You worship me, that's all it takes, and I'll deliver you all the kingdoms of the world. Again, Jesus quotes scripture to him. Again, Jesus tells him, that he is to worship God and God alone. Satan finds nothing in Jesus 
Jesus wins the victory. Satan left him and went away from him. What Jesus accomplished here in his human nature was a victory over the power of the devil. What he has given for us is an example so that when the tests come to us, compromise on your morals. Compromise on the deity of Christ. Compromise. Compromise that we say no. I worship God. I follow Jesus. The Jesus movement, as those singers who were here last night said, the Jesus movement didn't start a few years ago with bumper stickers and patches sewed on trousers. The Jesus movement started 2,000 years ago. Really following Jesus. But no compromise. One way. One way. Also, that we will not seek converts through razzle-dazzle, through using the world's methods and ways. We don't seek to hypnotize people into the kingdom. Thirdly, that first temptation, that there are some things that come first. The spiritual must ascend over the physical. Now you know, when Jesus left the wilderness, Luke tells us that he went down to the synagogue in his hometown of Capernaum to preach. But it tells us an interesting thing when he left Satan and his great temptation that had befallen him. You know what it says? So, having come to the end of all his temptations, the devil departed, biding his time, he would come again. Then Jesus, armed with the power of the Holy Spirit, returned to Galilee. When you've faced your temptations, do you come away armed with the power of the Holy Spirit, filled with his power? Or do you come away full of ashes and dirt in your soul and feeling filthy, guilty, and polluted? We are in a conflict. And what he has called us to is not a frolic, but a fight. And what it demands of us is complete obedience to him, the conscious lordship of Christ. Jesus said that if you earthly gifts, you earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will my heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So let us ask for the Holy Spirit's gracious power to be at work in our lives when we face temptation. Let us stand in prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we rejoice today in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee, our Father, for his victory over Satan.
We pray that thou wilt help us to follow in his train and to take seriously our commitment at our baptism and the recalling today of our affirmations of faith in him. Grant that we may be true to him. Help us to be willing to be the sons of God that he invited us to be because we believe in him. Not just today, but every single day. Let him be Lord of our lives and all that we have and are. For those here, O oh Father, who feel that this is an unrealizable ideal or only a story in an old book, may the Holy Spirit follow them away from this place and lead them to a commitment, costly, and real to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our teacher and our guide be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.